Now, tonight's topic is very important. I want to warn you, if I, if I was going to give a little preface to this subject tonight, I'm going to just say it like this. This is, again, like that, that, that story I told you about the Quaker man who was looking down in the dark from his stairwell. You know, you might feel like I'm shooting where you're standing, but please know that this is a Bible-based topic. And as we begin tonight, let's bow our heads as we open with prayer. Father in heaven, this evening we are thankful for the Bible. As we open its pages together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. We pray that you would guide our understanding so that we can understand this prophecy found in Revelation chapter 13. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before we launch into this subject tonight, I want to review with you what we've covered so far in Revelation. We looked at Revelation 12. Do you remember that? And we saw the, you know, the, 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 the heavenly conflict between Satan and Michael. And we saw that Satan was cast out. We saw that Satan has a renewed determination to cause planet Earth to join in his rebellion. And then we jumped over to 14. We saw the everlasting gospel. We saw the message about worshiping God, the creator. We, we learned about that the other night. Tonight, we're going to jump into the middle of those two chapters to Revelation 13. And here's how it begins. It says, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a, what everybody? A beast rise up out of the sea, having what? Seven heads and? Ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of what? Now, everything that's highlighted there in that verse, we're going to be looking at with specifics, okay? But before we do that, let's continue to read in the passage. Verse 2 says, and the beast which I saw was like unto a what? A leopard. Now, this is in the book of Revelation. This is in chapter 13. Let's keep reading. And his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a? Lion. So that's the description of the animal. This is a very unique creature. And I'm going to make a statement here that you can verify on your own. When you read the book of Revelation, when you read things that seem to be like almost utterly impossible, it's very likely that it's not literal. Does that make sense? Okay, so another way to say this is when you read Revelation and you see things or you see elements that are not, like, in your understanding, like, a, 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 possible, a possible thing, then most likely what you're reading is not a literal description, but a symbolic description. If that makes sense, can you say amen to that? So just want you to understand this. Okay, let's keep moving on. It says, and I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded how? To death. And then the Bible says, and his deadly wound was? Healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Let's pause for a moment and unpack this. We have, a, we have John in vision, and he sees this great sea, and this beast comes up out of the sea. It's this like amalgamation of a bear, a leopard, and a lion. Does that make sense? Then the Bible says that he receives his seat from this power called the dragon, and it goes on to give us this description that he, he gets this wound that almost kills him, but then he heals, and then he becomes world famous. Now, when we look at these symbols, the Bible doesn't leave us to just guess what we're talking about. Revelation is, is going to give us some clues about this, this symbolism. And here's Revelation 17, 15, when it talks about 
the waters. Notice what it says. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, here's an interesting fact. The Jewish nation of old considered themselves God's people. And when they looked at the surrounding nations, they referred to them as the sea. Now, that's very interesting because if you think about it, they were kind of isolated, this little plot of land, by these much more powerful enemies. And that symbolism or that, that imagery is perhaps the reason why the Bible uses this language. When the Bible says that out of the sea comes up this, this creature. Now, I think some of you know this, that in the Bible, a creature is a symbol of a kingdom. But I want to prove that to you. Notice what the Bible says. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great, what? Beasts came up from the sea, each different one from another. Now, we only need to go a little bit further in Daniel 7 to figure out what does this beast symbolize? These great beasts, which are four, are for what? Kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Verse 23 says, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth what? Kingdom. Now, please note this. In Scripture, when the Bible describes a beast, it, and it's clearly not literal, you know that that is a symbol in the symbolic language of Scripture. That is a symbol for a kingdom. Does that make sense? And you know this. In our modern cu uh, culture, it's not even far-fetched for us to associate an animal with a kingdom or a, a political power. If I was to put up a picture on the screen tonight of a, of a dragon, what kingdom or country would you think of? China. If I was to put one up of a bear, you would automatically think of Russia, right? So, like, do you understand this idea that animals representing kingdoms is not such a foreign idea to us in our modern society? But the Bible is emphasizing this very clearly. We don't have to guess. We know that this, this beast comes up out of the sea. We learn that the sea represents a place where there's lots of nations, multitudes of tongues and peoples. Well, when you see a beast, now what does a beast represent again? A kingdom come up out of the sea. It's simply telling us that in an area where there's lots of people, a nation arises. And this is kind of the interpretation of this idea. Now, do you remember that there were four beasts in Daniel 7? We just read this. Let me back up here. There were four beasts that Daniel saw in his vision. And this is really a symbol of four kingdoms. And if you remember, not that long ago, we looked at a vision of an image that was comprised of four metals. Do you remember that? This was on our first night together, I think. And we saw there was gold, silver, brass, and then iron. And this was a symbol for four kingdoms that were going to rule the world. When we moved over to Daniel 8, there was a similar history that was given to us. It gave us a ram that, of course, was a symbol of Medo-Persia. Then there was a goat, which was a symbol of Greece. And then there was a fourth uh, division, or I should say there was a little horn that went this way, this way, this way, and then the little horn went this way. This was a symbol of two phases of Rome, and we looked at that in Daniel chapter 8. But tonight, I want us to look at Daniel 7 in detail, because this is the basis for the language of Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says the first was like a what? Lion with what? Now, again, it, do you notice that 
in nature, there is not even a remote chance that you'll ever have a lion with eagle's wings. You get that, right? So it's not literal, it's what? It's symbolic. And the symbolism here is designed to let us know that this represents a nation or a kingdom. Now, the Bible gives us a clue because the first point on this chapter is that Daniel is the one that receives the vision. Now, Daniel was a statesman in the kingdom of Babylon, and every day when he would walk, you know, we, we don't know exactly what Babylon looked like now, but we do know a little bit about its structure based on ancient texts and ba- based on some other information. In Babylon, they had a road, and uh, it was the main street. The, the archaeologists call it the processional thoroughfare. And on that street, on either side of the street, Daniel would have seen this. You know what that is? It's a relief. Now, this is real. Like, this is not just the artist's drawing. Babylon had blue bricks, okay? They were enamel-glazed blue bricks. And on those blue bricks, they had a relief. And that's not just one. I could show you, like, many, many of these. But they had a relief of an animal. What kind of animal is that? It's a lion. But it's not just an ordinary lion. Look closely. It's a lion that has what? (laughs) has wings. Did you see that? So... If Daniel was receiving the vision and the angel says, look, these four creatures, they represent four kingdoms, Daniel automatically said, wait, did you say a lion with eagle's wings? Daniel automatically said, I know who that is. He automatically associated it with the kingdom of Babylon. Does that make sense? Daniel, for Daniel, that was easy. But then the angel tells Daniel, no, that's not the end of it. There is going to be another kingdom. It's going to be like a what kind of an animal? A bear. And did you notice that the bear doesn't stand up straight? It says it was raised up how? One side. So, like, does this make sense? The bear has one side that is higher than the other side. Do you get that? And in its mouth, he has three what? Ribs. And a command was given to, to the bear to devour much flesh. Well, it's easy. Once you understand who the lion represents, it's easy to understand who the bear is. The bear is simply the kingdom that takes over from Babylon. Well, that's not hard to find because when you study the history of the kingdoms of this location or this area of the world, after the Babylonians came the Medes and the Persians. We have studied about this this kingdom in previous lesson. We learned that the Medes and the Persians were really two kingdoms. The rulers were united or related. And when it first started out, the Medians were more powerful. But over time, the Persians became way more powerful. That's why the Bible says that the bear is lopsided. And if you study, in order for the Medes and the Persians to rise to world prominence, they had to defeat three enemies. They had to defeat the Egyptians, the Lydians, and of course the Babylonians. That's why the bear has three ribs in its mouth. And then the Bible goes on to tell us that there's another creature. And here's what it says. And after this, I looked and behold, there was another like a what animal? A leopard. Now, it wasn't just winged. It had how many wings? Four wings. By the way, what is a leopard known for? Like, what is the characteristic of a leopard? What do we know, like, as as far as an animal goes? The leopard is known to be extremely what? It's swift. It's a swift creature. So not only is this a swift creature emphasized by the choice of animal, but it's also, like, the wings, not, not just two, but four wings, emphasizing the rapid pace of its conquest. And guess what? 
we already know from history that the, the leopard would be the kingdom which would overthrow the bear kingdom or the Medes and the Persians. And that's easy. That was Greece. Alexander the Great, I, I shared this with you, 20 million square miles he had conquered. In the, I think if you really look at his military history, he mostly did it within the span of like 12 years. That's not a lot of time. Like we've been in Afghanistan for like 20 years. Isn't that right? We've been there for some time. So you understand that this is something that Alexander with remarkable speed was able to accomplish in a very, very short amount of time. And then the Bible says, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful. Now look closely, terrible, exceedingly strong. And it had huge, what kind of teeth? Iron teeth. Very, very important clue. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had what? Ten horns. Now, this is not hard to know because if you remember in our first night, we learned that the legs of the image were made of what? Iron. And this is, again, a symbol of Rome. Rome was the power that took over after the Greeks. Now, why does the Bible say that this creature had ten horns? Well, the Bible says that the ten horns are ten what? Kings that shall arise from this kingdom. Now, it's not a secret. When you look at the divisions of the Roman Empire, you will discover that when it first split, and this is like around, this is like around 476 A.D., it didn't just split up all at once. Like they, they had this agreement, let's all divide. No, it happened slowly. But once it finally split up, the final divisions of the Roman Empire happened around 476 AD. And you'll notice that these are the ancestors of modern Europeans. Like the, everybody knows the Anglo-Saxons are the British, the Franks are the French, the Suave are the Portuguese, the Visigoths are the Spanish, the Alemanni are the Germans. Um, now, there are three on this map that don't exist anymore. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoth. Those three, there's no descendants now. We don't, they didn't have the word back then, but today we refer to it as genocide. We're going to talk about what, what happened to those three in just a moment. Now, in Daniel 7, unlike Daniel 2, the Bible gives us some more information about the fourth kingdom. Now, remember... Let's review. The fourth kingdom was this terrible creature with iron teeth, and it had ten horns. And Daniel is looking, and then he notices, I was considering the horns. Now, let's review something. How many horns were there? Ten. Okay. I was, Daniel says, I was considering the horns, and there was what? Another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns fell, were plucked up, sorry, by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking what? Pompous words. Now, tonight I have to say something about this horn. If you were to go to every major Christian church in Westchester, and you knocked on the door, and you said, pastor, or priest, or, you know, whatever, if you went to them and said, I need you to tell me, what is this little horn in Daniel 7, verse 8? If they knew their material, they would say, oh, the little horn in Daniel 7, 8 is a symbol for the Antichrist. They would tell you that, okay? So that's good because almost every church, the only one that, that I'm, I'm not quite sure they would say the same thing. Um, well, okay, let me not get into that. Okay, the point is, 
Every church would probably say that. Okay, every church would probably say this. But then if you ask them, Pastor, who, who is the Antichrist? Who is this little horn? Who is this pointing to? You'll get three different answers depending on which church you go to. Does that make sense? Now, there could be more than three, but of, as far as my studies have shown me, the biggest categories fall into three distinct ideas about who this power is. But tonight I want to do something with you. I'm going to show you from the Bible the description of this power. So let's look closely. Here's what it says. First of all, it's a small kingdom. Did you notice that it's a horn? A horn represents a kingdom, but it is a small horn. Did you see that? And here's the second clue. Did you notice that it arises among the ten? Did you catch that? The, he was looking at the horns, and then a little one comes up. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you can picture this in your mind. Daniel is looking at the horns, and then it's like this little one is trying to come up, and there's no space, so he rips out three, and he makes himself established. Does that make sense? That's kind of the imagery that the Bible is giving us. So the first clue is that it arises among the divisions of the Roman Empire, and it's a small kingdom. That's the first clue. The second clue is this. The ten horns were finally established in the year 476, okay? Between 163 and 476, Rome became like, what's the right word? It became increasingly unstable, and these tribes started like encroaching on the borders, and they kept coming further and further in. And so the final division of the Roman Empire happens in the year 476 AD. Now, why am I pointing this out? The 11th horn, or this little horn, he comes up after the first 10 are already there. Does that make sense? So this little horn comes after the first 10 have already appeared. Not only that, he uproots three kingdoms who stand in his way. And I already told you the other, just a few minutes ago, they were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Just to be clear, those three tribes, they weren't weak. I don't want you to think that they were weak. Like, you know, when we, we have a word today in our English language, what do you call it when someone defaces public property? Vandalism. And do you know why it's called vandalism? Because the Vandals, they were this barbaric tribe that were really, like, ultra-violent. They, when they went places and conquered, they weren't content to just kill the people. They, they weren't just content to do that. They would burn down all the buildings. They would cut down trees. That takes some real effort. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you got to spend time to do that. And then, look, this is something else that they did. They sowed salt in the fields. If any of you garden, do you know what that does? That kills everything. You're, con you're destroying the pH of the ground. So these people were, like, really ferocious, but... They were wiped out. So three of these kingdoms were wiped out. And, and so we're going to come back to that. And then verse 24 of Daniel 7 gives this description. Speaking of the little horn, it says, he shall be what? Different from the first ones. Now, let's review something. The first 10 horns, what does a horn represent in Bible prophecy? It's a kingdom. But this little horn, he's different. And if you remember... Early on, it said that he had eyes and a mouth. Now, there's something that you have to know. Um, the mouth, it spoke pompous things, but the eyes in the Bible, 
are typically associated with spiritual office because in the Old Testament, there was an office called a prophet, but a prophet had another name. Did you know what they used to call a prophet? They called him a seer. So a prophet in the Bible was basically someone who spoke for God. Does that make sense? So this, this horn, he has some kind of a connection to being like a religious authority because he has eyes like the eyes of a man and he speaks some specific things. We're going to come to that in just a moment. So not only is it a small kingdom that arises among the 10, not only does he appear after the divisions of the first 10, not only does he uproot three, but he's different. How is he different? He's not just a political power. He has a religious authority. We're going to keep going. It also says, he shall speak, what kind of words? Pompous words against the most high. Now, when you translate this expression, pompous words, it actually says in the King James, he shall speak great words against the most high. You will find this is the same expression found in Revelation 13, verse 5. It says, he was given a mouth speaking what? Great things. As I mentioned, in the King James, Daniel 7, I think it's 21 or 23, and Revelation 13, they use the same expression. He shall speak great words against the Most High. Now, did you notice that there's a new word here in Revelation 13? It says, he shall speak great things and what else? Blasphemies. Now, the expression blasphemy in the Bible is not generic. Blasphemy is like very specific. And I want to show you what the Bible denotes as blasphemy. This is when Jesus claimed or said that he and his father were one. When he said that, the Jews got upset. They answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for what reason? For blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself what? Now, now please note this. The Jews could not tolerate listening to Jesus claim that he was God, even though Jesus was God, amen? Jesus was God, so Jesus did not speak blasphemy. But if a regular person claims to be God, according to the Bible, that would be what? That would be blasphemy. Do you get that? That would be blasphemy. Jesus didn't speak blasphemy because Jesus is God. But when they heard that, they couldn't, like, they couldn't comprehend that Jesus was God, so they accused him of blasphemy which means blasphemy is when a man claims to be God. Okay, so we read uh, the other night in 2 Thessalon Thessalonians 2 verse 4 that that's exactly what the Antichrist power would do. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. By the way, the word temple there, it's from the Greek word naos, and it doesn't mean building. It's actually referring to the church. So the Bible predicted that at the end of time, there would be an apostasy within the Christian church where someone would claim to be God. Now, Jesus also was one time in a house where they broke the roof open and they let down a man. And when Jesus saw the man, he didn't say like, you know, be healed. You know what he said? He said, your sins be forgiven. And then the people outside, they heard, and they said, whoa, who is this? Who, this guy is speaking blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but what? God alone. Now, I want you to notice something. 
when Jesus claimed to be able to forgive the man's sin, the people listening accused Jesus of what? Blasphemy. Now, do you understand this? Jesus can forgive sins because Jesus is God. Amen? But if a man claims that he can forgive your sins, that means that according to the Bible, that man is speaking what? Blasphemies. Okay, that's, that's the understanding that we have. So, this little horn, not only does he arise after 476 among the ten horns, and he uproots three kingdoms that stand in its way, he's both political and religious, but he also speaks blasphemy, claiming to be God or claiming to forgive sins. But let's go on. The Bible says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute what group of people? The saints of the Most High. This would be a persecuting power. Now, make no mistake, Revelation 13 describes the first beast as doing exactly that. It says that it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. I'm going to just make a point here. The reason why we are reading Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 about the little horn together is because they're the same power. In Revelation 13, the Bible describes the same animals. Do you remember there was a lion, a bear, and a leopard in Daniel 7? Revelation 13, the beast has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of what creature? A lion. So it's the same animals, okay? So in, in addition to it's a small kingdom that arises among the ten after 476, destroying three kingdoms that stand in its way, and it's political and religious. It speaks blasphemies, claiming to forgive sins, claiming to be God, but it's also a persecuting power. That's not all. It says, he shall intend, well, let me read the whole thing. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change what? Times and laws. That's a clear reference. Now, let me see if I can highlight something. Did you notice the language of the Bible? It says that he shall intend. In the King James, it says he shall think to change. Now, does it make sense that a political power can make whatever laws he wants, right? That's, you know, a kingdom, a, a country can do that. When it says that he speaks out against God and he persecutes God's people, the, in, the inference is that this power is now trying to change God's law. Do you follow that? See, he's speaking against God. He can't attack God in heaven because God's in heaven. But Jesus said, as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. So who does he attack? He can't attack God, so he attacks God's people. And then the Bible says that he thinks or he intends to try to change God's law. So that's another clue about this power. And then the Bible says in Daniel 7, verse 25, and the saints shall be given into his hand. In other words, God allows this power to persecute for how long? Let's notice, how long? Time and, times and, half a time. Now, here's a little clue. In Daniel chapter uh, 4, there is the story of Nebuchadnezzar going insane. You can go there and you can read it. And the angel predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would go insane until seven times had passed over him. Now, that term times, it means one year. So seven times would mean that Nebuchadnezzar went insane for seven years, and then he came back to the kingdom. And that's how history records it. Well, guess what? In this prophecy, it says that he rules for a time, times, and half a time. If time is a year, times would be more than one year. It would be two years. 
and then a half a time would be half a year. So the total amount of time that this power gets to persecute God's people is how long? Three and a half years. Now, I don't want to confuse you at this point, but I have to point something out. That period of three and a half years in the Bible, it's always connected with something. So let's review something. When Jesus was on the earth, after living for 30 years as a carpenter, how long did he do his public ministry for? Three and a half. Now, before he did his public ministry, I just want you to think about something. Before he did his public ministry, what event marked the start of his ministry? He was baptized, right? So he was baptized. Don't miss this. He came up out of the water, right? He began his preaching. And then at the end of three and a half years, what happened to Jesus? He was killed, right? But then after three days, what happened? He rose again, right? So, so do you understand where I'm going with this? Did you notice that the beast, he comes up out of the, out of the sea, right? And he rules for how long? Three and a half prophetic years. Now, why am I saying prophetic years? Because the whole chapter, Daniel 7, is symbolic. And remember what I told you? In symbolic prophecy, one day equals one year. So three and a half prophetic years is 1,260 literal days. And in Bible prophecy, one day equals one year. That's 1,260 years. So he rules for 1,260 years. What happens at the end of that? The Bible says that he receives a deadly wound. But then afterwards, he is healed, right? So it's not that Jesus has a twin, but he's called the Antichrist because remember what I said, Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ. It more closely means instead of Christ, okay? It's a copy. So here's the clues. The small kingdom that arises among the divisions of the Roman Empire after the year 476, he destroys three kingdoms that stand in its way. It's both political and religious. He speaks blasphemies, claiming to forgive sins, claiming to be God. He's a persecuting power. He thinks that he can change God's law, and it rules for 1,260 years. Who do these signs in Revelation 13 and in Daniel 7, the little horn, who do they point to? Now, please understand that this is a symbol. All of these identifying marks, they point to the Roman papacy, the Roman Catholic Church system. Now, I want to be careful how I say this. When we say that the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church system is the Antichrist, we're not talking about the, in, the constituent members. Does that make sense? I want to give you an example. Do you remember in the Bible, the Jewish nation, they rejected Jesus. Does that make sense? But were there people among the nation that accepted Christ? There were. There was Nicodemus. There was Simeon. There was like a bunch of people that accepted Jesus, but the system, the Jewish nation as a system, they completely rejected Jesus. Does that make sense? In the same way, when we talk about the papacy as being the antichrist of the Bible, we are not talking about your friends or family that go to church. I have Catholic family. They're some of the nicest people that you would ever meet. They're all physicians, by the way, and they, they perform surgeries. And like, they're in Baltimore, they're an integral part of the Baltimore healthcare system. But the point is that that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the system. Do you understand that? 
much, much bigger. Now, how can we prove that point? Well, it's true that the papacy, in fact, did you know that the Vatican is the Holy See is the smallest country recognized by the United Nations in the world today? Did you know that? It's only like some of you might have owned more land than comprises the Vatican. It's tiny. Did it arise among the divisions of the Roman Empire? Absolutely. We're going to learn tonight that they did destroy three kingdoms that stood in its way. Let me give you a little history. There was an emperor, Justinian, and he wanted his he wanted to give the, the papacy uh, political authority because they just had religious authority. So what he did is he started targeting these different kingdoms. He targeted the Heruli, and then he couldn't finish everything, but the Vandals were wiped out. And then after the Vandals were wiped out, then they targeted the Ostrogoths. And this was the third horn that was plucked up. Does that make sense? Now, when you want to count the 1260 years that it rules, the Catholic Church existed before 538. But when it describes the little horn, it's describing a religious political power. That only began in the year 538. Does that make sense? So it goes on that this power would rule for 1260 years. But let's go on. Is it both a political and religious power? Absolutely. The papacy is the only church that has a seat at the United Nations. Did you know that? The, it's called the whole, it says the Holy See. The, the Episcopal Church doesn't have a seat there. The, cat, the, the Methodist Church doesn't. The Baptist Church doesn't. The Seventh-day Adventist Church doesn't. The Holy See is unique. They are both a kingdom of a political power as well as a religious power. Do they claim or do they speak great things? They do. Let me give you some examples of that. And I don't want to get too bogged down in this. But this is one of their encyclical letters. This is like an official church statement. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Now, this is another letter. For thou art our shepherd, thou art our physician, thou art governor, thou art husbandman, thou finally art another God on earth. I am in all in all and above all, so that God himself and I, the vicar of God, hath both one consistory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. These are just popes that, you know, are saying these statements. The Pope is so great a dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God. The Pope is called most holy because he is rightfully presumed to be such. Hence, the Pope is crowned with a triple crown with king of heaven, of earth, and the lower region. Moreover, the superiority and the power of the Roman pontiff by no means pertain only to heavenly things, to earthly things, and thus things under the earth, but are even over angels than whom he is greater." So that if it were possible that the angels might err from the faith, they could be judged and excommunicated by the Pope. For he is of so great dignity and power that he forms one and the same tribunal with Christ. So that whatever the Pope does seems to proceed from the mouth of God. The Pope is, as it were, God on earth. Now, again, I don't want to read you too much, but I think you understand that. Now, has the papacy a history of persecution? If you know your church history, this is not hard to know. They even say this themselves. The church has persecuted only a novice in church history. That's what the word tyro means, would deny that. The church may, be, may, by divine right, confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. In other words, this is what they claim. The church may be, oh, wait, I already read that. Um, 
Okay, so, so they, they do have a history of that. Did they intend to change God's law? Well, here's what they said. Wherefore, no marvel if it be in my power to dispense with all things, yea, with the precepts of Christ. The Pope has power. Oh, did I read this already? Yeah. The Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws. And I did read this. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 okay, let me, let me go on. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the scriptures because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by, its command, not by a command of Christ, but by its own authority. Now, did they rule for 1260 years? Well, what did we say marks the beginning of the political and religious reign of the papacy? What did we say? It was the uprooting of the, the third horn, right? The third horn, which happened in the year 538. When you count 1260 years, you arrive at the year 1798. And what could we expect in that year? We're not expecting that the papacy will cease to exist as a church. We are expecting them to no longer have political power. And that's exactly what happened. Here's a little history for you. In the, excuse me, in the year 1798, Napoleon had a brother. And his brother's name was Joseph Bonaparte. And he got into a little bit of a tussle between the local Catholic church and himself, and it was in regards to their authority. Well, guess what? In the scuffle, there was a Frenchman that was killed. So Napoleon heard about this, and he got upset. And he said, guess what? We're going we're gonna to do something about this. So in 1798, he sent a general into the, the Vatican, and um, the pope at the time was Pius VI. They took him captive. They put him in prison in France, and he actually died there. But from that point on, the Vatican was declared a republic. Does that make sense? They, did, they no longer were like a theocracy or an autocracy. It was now a republic, a government by the people. So that was the event that transpired exactly 1,260 years later. Were they still a church? Sure. But they just lost their political power. Now... The Bible gives us a part of this prophecy that is still future. Here's what it says. I saw one of his heads, as it were, if it had been mortally wounded. That happened in the year 1798. And his deadly wound was what? Healed. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and then not tonight, but it's coming next week. We're going to cover this in more detail. But I'm here to tell you tonight that according to prophecy, we should expect that the papacy will become increasingly influential in world politics as we approach the end of time. And here's what it says. His deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and did what? Followed the beast. We're going to talk about that in, a pre, in an upcoming topic when we talk about the mark of the beast. Now, as we close tonight, here's what I want to say. You could know everything about prophecy. You could know who the beast is. You can know who the Antichrist is. You can know all these things. Does it make sense that if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, none of that knowledge will do you any good? Does it make sense? So in this seminar, it's not that our goal is to scare you. It's not to discredit institutions that you may have been a part of. That's not our goal. We want to teach what the Bible says. But more than anything, you should have greater confidence that Jesus knows the end from the beginning. And if Jesus knows the future, 
That means that he can take care of you. He can take care of me. No matter what comes, if I give my life to Jesus, Jesus is going to take care of me. Can you say amen to that? Bow your heads, to, bow your heads with me tonight as we close. Father in heaven, we've looked at a prophecy tonight that is definitely a controversial topic. My prayer for every one of us in here tonight is that Jesus would be a personal friend to us. That no matter what comes in the future, no matter what people say, no matter what happens, that we can find a closer walk with Jesus so that no matter what comes, we will have trust and abiding faith in him. Help this to be every one of our experience. Even for those watching, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray.